This is the Horse Radio Network. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wood. And I'm Jennifer Connor from Equestrian Business Women. And you are listening to Equestrian B2B, the podcast that brings together industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and equestrians for conversations about how they build and sustain a successful business. On today's show, we will discuss how to run a successful nonprofit business, what challenges are the same and different for a nonprofit versus a for-profit business, how to work with a board of directors, how to find staff for a nonprofit, and how to thrive when dependent on donations and support. Our guest, Beth Porter, is a nonprofit lifer, having spent more than 30 years in programming and development with education, arts, and political action organizations. Beth joined as the executive director of Giant Steps in 2011, following the retirement of the founder, Robert Pope. Over the last decade, Beth has worked with the board and staff to expand programming and build resources so that Giant Steps can serve as many deserving clients as possible. The daughter of a fifth-generation harness horseman, Charlie and Dot Morgan, Winnie Morgan Namath, grew up on her family's Ohio farm. She went to college at the University of Kentucky and then graduated from Ohio State University with a degree in education. In 2004, she took her first standardbreds for New Vocations Racehorse Adoption Program and placed over 200 retired standardbreds from her Saline, Michigan farm through 2009. Moving back to Ohio in 2010, she was able to grow the Standard Bread Division of New Vocations as the Standard Bread Program Director, overseeing three Standard Bread farms in Ohio and New York, fundraising events, numerous trade shows, and promoting the breed. Thanks, guys, for joining us today. And we're really excited to talk to you. I know Connor and I have both had a lot of interaction with nonprofits. I work with uh, a few nonprofits in my regular job in PR and marketing. And I was really curious to talk to you guys about the differences and the similarities between a nonprofit and a for-profit business. So we're looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, I'm actually on the board of the Purple Haze Standard Bread Adoption Program. So when I was going through the questions, I was looking at some things that have come up on our board with our program that I thought would be nice to know, get some insight into what your programs do. Winnie, can I ask what you do? Yes, I'm the Standard Bread Program Director for New Vocations Racehorse Adoption Program. We're a 501c3 charity. And Beth is the Executive Director at Giant Steps Therapeutic Riding Program out in California. So just wondering how you guys think how difficult it is or you found it to start in a nonprofit. So Winnie, if you could start, do you, do you have any advice or tips that you can give for starting it up? Did you run into any difficulties? Give me a little background on that. So yeah, I'm happy to share what I can about New Vocations. We were founded in 1992 and my mom, Dot Morgan, is the executive director and founder of New Vocations Racehorse Adoption Program. And we place retired standard breads and thoroughbreds that are retiring off the track into approved new homes. And then we monitor those horses as well. They leave with a contract. So in terms of like getting a nonprofit started, I get that question a lot. And over the years of, of working with New Vocations since I was a teenager and then watching it develop and us get our 501c3 status a few years after she started the organization, 
is you definitely need to run it as a business. You need to have a business plan. You need to have a strategy plan. Ever since I think about 2005, every year we have an offsite strategy planning day or two with our employees and also our, our trainers. And we have somebody, a strategy person come in and facilitate that. And that has really just helped us lay out like what our mission was, what our goals were. Early on in New Vocations, Dot was placing 50 horses a year. And then as things started to grow and people started to get behind her mission, we knew that if we wanted to continue growing and help more horses, we had to start with what was our goal and then work backwards. And that's where doing these strategy sessions, we were able to get get that plan in place early And early on, I remember us wanting to place 100 horses. So what do we have to do to work backwards to place that? And then every year, we've continued to change our goals, increase the amount of horses that we're able to help. We've placed over 7,000 horses since we started with New Vocations. Um, Last year, we served 618 horses in 2020. So really, it's laying out your strategy, your plan, your mission statement, And also really utilizing your board of directors. We have an incredible group on our board and there's nine people and uh, two of them have been with us since 1992, (laughs) since it started. So it's been really great to have that insight as well. But my biggest piece of advice is to run it as a business. We are at 501c3 charity, but you need to run it as a business. And Beth, I know you've been in the nonprofit sector for most of your career. What advice do you have if people want to 501c3? Well, I totally agree with Winnie that it we really are small businesses as well. We have a dual bottom line that we can talk about. I have not had to start one. What I would say is just a request to the universe. Before you do it, scan and make sure there isn't an organization already doing what your new idea is, and maybe you can partner with them to start. Beyond that, it's starting with a fabulous board of directors and knowing what you want to accomplish and how you plan to do that. Yeah. I totally agree with Winnie. And Beth, does nonprofit mean that the organization isn't allowed to make money or is it how the money is spent? Can you explain the difference between that and a regular business? Sure. Well, the most central is that we don't pay uh, corporate income tax to the feds or to the state. But other than that, it's very much the same. And we have to raise more money than we spend, like any good business. In good years, we will set aside if we have success in our fundraising, we will set aside some money. So we do have reserves and certainly a year like the last year has shown us that that's really critical to do. But at the end of the day, how we measure our success is by the impact that we're having. So we're not setting money aside beyond our rainy day fund. We really need to put the money to use if we are trying to implement our mission. So we can make more than we spend, but how we use it is really the difference. For sure. Definitely. And Winnie, is, do you think there's, besides the tax benefit? Are there other benefits that people would have to making their organization nonprofit? Well, first, the reason why New Vocations, we decided to become a charity was for the, from the beginning, the tax uh, deduction. Owners were spending a lot of money on their racehorses. And when the whole idea came about, as Beth said, nobody was doing what New Vocations was doing back in the early 90s and late 90s even. Nobody had heard of like recycling a racehorse. 
And prominent owners came to Dot and really said, listen, if you were a charity, this would really benefit me. What you're doing is very important. Nobody's doing this. So it happened that two owners stepped up and said, we'll help you become a charity. And that was a huge benefit. Now I feel moving on now to 30 years <laughs> that we've been around. I think people are very supportive of charities beyond just that tax deduction. They want something they can support and they want to support uh, an organization that is, if they're passionate about racehorses or horses in general, they want to help them continue to go on to that next phase of their life. So they're wanting just to support something that they know is reputable, has been around for a long time, and a lot of people just have a heart for charity. Right. And Beth, what kind of funding model do you have? What's the way that you guys <laughs> raise money? Dollar by dollar by dollar. We are a nonprofit that has about 10% of our budget come in through fees. 90% of it is raised. I remember, I don't know, four or five years ago, one of my board members saying, it's finally dawning on me, the ratio. She came from an independent school background where a much more significant portion of the budget came from fees. Having worked with education, political action, arts, et cetera, I can say disability fundraising is by far the hardest unless you have someone in your life with a disability. You really... You don't think about it that much. You don't want to think about it that much. So we raise a lot of little tiny grants, 2500 5000 We've got a couple of big ones. So most of our funding actually comes from events and individuals. We have a six-day horse show that we just completed last week out at Sonoma Horse Park, an AA Hunter Jumper show. That raises about 20% of our budget. And it's one mm-hmm. of those things where people can come to our horse show, can come to our farm to stable dinner, whatever it is. They may love our mission. They may not. They may just want to bid in our auction and have a great dinner. And we're okay with that. Every time a few more people fall in love with us and fall in love with our mission. But that's just the model we've had to take. Right. And Winnie, is yours similar or how do you deal with fundraising? Yes. All of our funds are brought in very similar to what Beth just said through donations and fundraisers and grants. Those are Mm -hmm. our three major ways of getting funding. So talking about grants, can Winnie, can you explain a little more about the grants and how they work and maybe go into where you look for the grants? Sure. There's a few organizations that we partner with. A big one of ours is called the Right Horse Organization. We were one of their founding partners. They also partner with the ASPCA. So every year since they've started, they've came to us to learn more about our model and how we work, but they are huge, very instrumental in giving us grants. And like, for example, a grant to the Right Horse, what they like to see is how much money are you asking for and what are you going, going to do with those funds? And then we report back, this is what we did with the funding you gave us. That's how that grant works. And there's other grants out there. The ASPCA has one that is just for helping horses. So how many horses are you taking in? There's funding for that. And then we have, we get, we're partners with the Thoroughbred Transition Alliance and also the Standard Bread Transition Alliance. And we apply for grants to those organizations, which are industry organizations, and they specifically are helping retired racehorses. And those are also major for us as well. And we also do a lot of big fundraisers throughout the year. We also have a horse show coming up in September in Aiken, South Carolina this year. That raises a significant part of our funding. And then we do smaller things where we're at racetracks and events selling our clothing, like the Rolex or the Little Brown Jug. That's a a very small part, but it helps get our mission out to people. When they're wearing our clothing, people see that and 
they um, might ask about it. It's just a great way to advertise. Well, it sounds like the grants, it's difficult because they're spread all over the place. Do you find it hard to pick through and to get the grants? It can be. So I'm not the person doing the grants. <laughs> it's usually the grant person. I help and assist with the numbers and our, our database and our spreadsheet of horses every year. But no, there are a lot out there. I really feel when the right horse came on board, probably six years ago, they've been very instrumental in that they had the funding, but they wanted you to creatively come up with how to get it. Now that doesn't fund our whole year by any means, but it makes a significant you know, that really helped us. And really just looking at things and people wanting to support retired racehorses, adoptions, and a lot of it industry-wide, of course. With the pandemic, we did, for the first time ever, require a minimum $500 donation to come with every horse. That was huge because all of our fundraisers last year in person were canceled. And just by asking for that $500 to come in initially with every horse, and of course, some people gave more, it it really helped our bottom line. It was great. Beth, do you have other areas that you can look for grants and funding because of the therapeutic part of it? Really, no. We are basically also grant writing. We write probably 50 or 60 grants each year, which range in size from $500 to $100,000. We just comb through all the guidelines, see where we can find some sort of match. We do serve a variety of disabilities. So one organization might only want to fund Down syndrome. Another might be interested in cerebral palsy. And really, I would say most of our money probably comes from family foundations, which is basically individuals. And the nice thing about family foundations is they don't tend to change their guidelines. So if they were interested in disabilities 10 years ago, they will still be interested in disabilities now. So that I would say is a more of an area of focus for us. We don't do any government grants. And because we are, our classes are taught by certified riding instructors, not by hippotherapy providers, we don't get insurance reimbursement either. So it really is about just, as I say, kissing a lot of frogs to find my prince and princesses. (laughs) Have you seen an increase in the industry of support and recognition and people wanting to help more, like maybe over the past 10, 15 years in both of your areas? Yes, huge. I've, it's been huge. It started, I will say the thoroughbreds were, thoroughbred industry was the leader in aftercare. Harness racing is really caught up and, and they have been fantastic just within the past 10 years. But early on, the thoroughbred in, industry embraced what was happening and having that industry support and people understanding when horses are done racing, they could be four or five. They have a long life ahead of them. Um, they don't need to be discarded. A lot of them were going to slaughter People, owners didn't even realize that was happening. Trainers would say, we're giving this horse to a family. They'll be fine. But because racehorses have a tattoo or a freeze brand, now a microchip, they're identifiable. And when you can identify them, then you can identify who used to own them or where they came from. And that stigma is not good for racing. And that really helped people understand why organizations like New Vocations and Purple Haze are very important. Right. And how about you, Beth? Same for us. Equine therapy is a a loose term, but it's getting more coverage in the media. And I think a couple of, you know, famous names have associated themselves with equine therapy. And hopefully most of our programming is for disabled kids and adults, but we do have some programming for folks with emotional challenges, which ranges from veterans with PTSD, victims of uh, sexual, military sexual trauma, kids of incarcerated parents, 
And I think more and more mental health coverage is being put out into the universe and being treated as an injury, not as a stigma. So the more that happens, the better for us. And we have a wait list and we will probably always have a wait list. So Hmm. definitely there is demand for our services. As we're still on the financial aspect, is there a difference between a person who wants to donate and more of a sponsorship that comes in? And how do you work with sponsors or corporations who want to support you? I know, Beth, you have some corporate donors as well for your organization. We do. And the easiest way to explain it is if you're talking with a corporation and you're talking with the marketing department, that's probably a sponsorship. If you're talking with the philanthropy department, that's probably a donation. In reality, if they're getting benefits back, whether it's tickets to the fundraise, PA announcements, logos, what have you, that has value and they are meant to deduct the value of those benefits from the sponsorship. So if they gave you $10,000 and received $4,000 in benefits, only 6000 of that is truly tax deductible. So mm-hmm. in our horse show, I would say half of our sponsors are just doing it as this is the way they give their money to us each year. And we don't really give them much in the way of benefits. And then there are some who are really associated with the horse world and want their name out there. They want the impressions. They want to know, you know how many people you have on your Instagram. And that's really a sponsorship. Yeah. And Winnie, how do you find corporate sponsors to help your organization? Well, we reach out a lot to, again, the industry. So anybody that is connected with harness racing, thoroughbred racing, a majority of the support is coming from owners and a lot of owners own companies. So their company might want to sponsor part of our horse show or be, we have different levels of sponsorships for our horse show. And we have a lot of support from the industry, whether it be their businesses or companies they own that want to support that way. Great. And how do you guys handle your horse donations? Beth, do you guys take donations of horses for your program? Absolutely. Of our 14 horses, I would say 11 are donated. Three are still owned by their original owners. And when they retire, they'll return. Ours is a very specific model because these are horses who will now be working with a number of different riders. We have 150 volunteers for our barn each week. So it has to be truly the perfect horse. So they will come first instructors will go out and they'll get on the back of the horse and maybe wave their arms a little bit, maybe have some verbal outbursts. We'll surround the horse because for our maximum support riders, the horse will have both the leader and two sidewalkers. Not all horses love that, etc. So we'll do just a baseline test at the horse's own property. Then they'll come to our barn for three to six months to try out uh, and see if they like it. First, they'll just settle into the barn, figure out who their turnout buddy is, what have you. Then they'll go in a class without a mounted rider. Then they'll go probably with an instructor as a mounted rider. And then they'll finally be working with an actual client. And of the horses who don't work out, I would say roughly half the time, it's because they don't enjoy the work. They don't enjoy having an unbalanced rider. They really were a one girl pony and that's what they want. And the other half of the time, they just don't love that many people in the barn. It's they're being handled by a different set of volunteers every day. And that's not every horse's dream, but we've got some good ones and they're all on their second or third career. One was a police horse. One was a dressage. One was a hunter jumper. One was a lesson horse. They're all in their twenties. So <laughs> they've been, they're such special horses in those programs. They are. They <laughs> are. I have a friend who donated her standard bread to one and he's thrived in it. People love him. <laughs> 
Yeah, they're very social, the ones who who like therapeutic work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you get a lot of people looking to donate their horses to your program? Especially when the economy starts to turn Mm -hmm. a little sour. Yes, many of them are not at all suitable. I swear we have people call with horses with three legs and we think, how did you possibly think that would be a fit for our program? (laughs) But we, we just have a horse need now. And we don't really advertise somehow the universe always delivers. And we're hoping that will happen again. We keep a wide variety of, you know, small, narrow for kids who have really tight muscle tone, big, wide for our veterans, animated for our kids with autism, slow moving for the kids with no balance. So it it really runs the gamut. (laughs) And Winnie, I know you mentioned that you guys were having a fee to to donate horses over the past year. Is that something that you're going to continue to do? Do you have a lot of horses coming in and out of the program? What's your horse adoption, your horse donation like? So our whole model is that we're a service to horsemen and we're able to take their horses when they're retiring from the racetrack. So we typically always have a waiting list for both thoroughbred and standard breads. We have seven facilities right now where we can take horses. If they're able to send a donation, we ask that they do just because a lot of people don't realize that we pay a day rate and we pay a training rate. So the service that we're providing, we have to pay for. It's not free, but we have not had a shortage of horses. And and as I said, we do have a waiting list of horses and our specific guidelines are as if they are of a racing age. So I'll just speak on the standard breads. We prefer if they've raced within the past year and a half and under the age of 15. When we were low on horses because we were getting them adopted so quickly last year, I did step out of my comfort zone and take some older horses just because I had room to. And and that worked nicely. They stay a little longer, but now I'm able to take horses that are rehabbing, but that have been racing. So that's where our mission has always been. Stay tuned to hear more after these words from our advertiser. Being an equestrian means being outside all year round. Whether you're an accomplished competitor or a weekend warrior, the same constant remains. You need clothing that works as hard as you do. This is why we created Redding Oat, our one-of-a-kind pieces from acclaimed outerwear to our new schooling collection available this fall, make it simple for you to stay comfortable and organized no matter the weather or circumstance. Shop Redding Oat at www.reddingoatequestrian.com. Kind of looking at your organizations and having you both have boards, how do you find people to be on a board? What kind of people work well to be on the board of a nonprofit? And Winnie, maybe you could start. Okay. Our board has a good a good variety of people. We have a a prominent equine lawyer um, from Lexington. We have an Ohio state representative that's been on our board since the beginning. We have a veterinarian on our board. So being that we are a racehorse program, just people that understand the racing industry. We have a racing secretary. We have a TVG commentator on our board. So again, they're very well versed in uh, the racing industry and they understand horse racing. And we have a good mix of both standard bred and thoroughbred people on our board. And Beth, how about you? Fairly similar. We, in theory, we have board members for six years. They have two, 
three-year terms. Not everyone does two terms, but typically they do. So we try to be very intentional about what the needs are for the next six years for our organization. As Winnie said, you have to have a plan and be working the plan. So we'll always have some financial types. We'll always have a lawyer. We'll always have some marketing types. And then it really varies depending on what we're working on. In the coming um, few years, we're trying to add a second location. So that will obviously change the dynamic of our board and the profile of who we want on our board. And then alongside that, we also have started an advisory board. So if it's someone who maybe is too busy for our board or really has an area of specialization that we won't need day in, day out for six years, we might ask them to join the advisory board. And we've had people go both ways from the advisory board to board and from the board to the advisory board. It's a variety. We obviously have a lot of horse people, but then we also have people who are parents in the program and know the disability side and are really excited to learn more about the horse side. So it's a nice variety. And I've been very lucky. Giant Steps has a great board. And Beth, who makes most of the day-to-day decisions? Is it the board or is it the executive director? Definitely the executive director, at least in a well-run nonprofit. The board sets the direction and they select, hire, and if necessary, fire the executive director. But then it's really up to them to empower the team, the, the staff in total, to execute against the plan. And if they want to be helper bees, that's great, but it has to be a helper bee in a meaningful way. If they want to come and get auction lots for my auction, have at it. But if they want to micromanage my books, that won't work as well. And when you have a- It's definitely the same. So our executive director, Dot Morgan, is in charge. And then I am the standard bread program director. And then Anna Ford is the thoroughbred. So between the three of us, we're making the day-to-day decisions for the organization. Our board knows where we're going, what we're doing, our books at all times. They know our, our direction. We meet four times a year. And we also meet We also have small meetings with them about once a month, just giving them updates as to what we're doing. And Winnie, how many staff members do you employ in the organization and what are the different requirements that you need? It's not a, it's not a specialized type of company. So how do you figure out what types of uh, positions there are? So that's kind of been um, trial and error over the years. Right now, we have um, eight employees that work for our new vocations, three of them being Dot, Anna, and myself. And then we have an office manager that is in our main office in Lexington, Kentucky. We have our own farm there. So that's staffed with a trainer and contract. Trainers are contract workers, but we also have the help, the stall cleaners that are from there. We have, we're currently searching for a fundraising specialist to help us with our fundraising and kind of donor relations. That job is currently posted um, on our website. We have a full-time bookkeeper. She's in every day. So she's always doing the book work and paying invoices and such like that. We have a person that strictly does our application for people wanting to adopt the horses. So those applications have to get approved. I oversee that, but just like last year, we had over 1,500 people applying for horses. And it's a full-time job contacting the veterinarians, contacting their references, going through the photos of where they're boarding these horses and very much a time crunch because if they can get approved and they can get a horse, they can adopt a horse that makes room for another horse to come into the program. So that person is also very important to our day-to-day things that we're doing. And then we also have a trainer at every facility. I have calls with every one of my trainers. I work with three of them right now once a week, but I pretty much talk to them every day because we have horses coming and going daily. But all of our locations have a trainer 
and we all have a weekly call with those trainers. So we know, again, what the what horses are coming and going. If somebody wants to send a horse, they contact me. So we have a donor form that we send to that person and that helps me see if I think the horse is a good fit for the program. We created that donor form along with our lawyer years and years ago. We've changed it and tweaked it, but that's a big thing that that every horse has to come with that form. And then we go from there as to if it's going to be a good fit for our program. And then another important part of what we do is just our barriers and our blacksmiths that we're working with almost a day-to-day basis as horses are coming in with injuries or rehabbing. I look, I'm looking on our USTA website, their pathway report. I look at pedigrees. I look at racing starts when they last raced. Again, just trying to see if they're a good fit for us, if I'm going to be able to find that horse at home. And if not, I try to direct them somewhere else. But it's a lot of horse care and management and touching base with our people every day. Yeah. And Beth, I'm sure you have a wide variety of people and skills that you need in your organization too, right? We do. We're six full-time permanent employees, three admin, three barn. So admin is me, development, and our business manager. At the barn, we have our program director, our head instructor, and our volunteer coordinator. We also have a part-time facilities coordinator. And then we have 10 hourly instructors. And most of them teach three to four hours a week. All of our barn team plus our facilities directors are also certified instructors. And then really where the pedal hits the metal for us is the volunteer base is equivalent to four and a half full-time equivalents. They come and they groom, they tack, they lead, they sidewalk, they untack, they clean tack. They do everything. And without them, we, we, we couldn't do our program. We do have, mm-hmm. like like Winnie does, a barrier. We have a couple of vets we work with, et cetera, who just bill for their services. But really, it's our volunteers who make it all possible. How do you recruit the volunteers? We recruit them constantly. We have a few different profiles. We definitely have the, the people who've been with us for 10 years. They love the program. They come for two hours every Wednesday, whatever it might be. They're either retirees or they have a flexible work schedule where this is just their passion area. Maybe they used to have a horse they don't anymore, and they, this is their horse time. Then we have a constant cycle of the, the high school students who need their volunteer service hours, which is great until prom and exams and track meets and everything else come around. So they come to us. And then when the economy is bad, we get a lot of horses, but we also get a lot of volunteers who are between jobs, need some structure during their day just like keeping their finger in something, being social. Occasionally we'll get the person with too many parking tickets who can do community service hours. So we're constantly recruiting. It is our, we just lost our volunteer coordinator after five and a half years. So Mm -hmm. we are also with a job opening and it takes a special person who loves to find the unique skills that each volunteer brings because they're all different humans, just like our clients are. Yeah. And I think equine nonprofits are so I feel like they're much different than, say, a regular nonprofit of the American Cancer Society. I'm just throwing that out there. They're very, I think, corporate structured, whereas equine nonprofits, you've got that corporate structure and you've got the the fundraising side, but then you've got people who muck the stalls and people who train the horses and things like that. I think it's such a, it's a dichotomy, but you have to have such a wide variety of skills in your company. And what's interesting for us, because we have so many volunteers through the barn each week, everyone has to do everything the giant steps way. 
So I don't care how you tack your horse at home. Here, we have to do it the same way, the same order so that it's better for the horses. So we have a fairly extensive orientation session. Then we have ongoing sessions about how to lead, how to sidewalk, how much you interface with your rider. Some of our riders are nonverbal. So the volunteer is then responsible for teaching hand signals to the riders for walk on and halt. So it's there's some very technical expertise that comes along with it. So it's it's fun. It's good. Yeah. Winnie, what kind of volunteers do you guys have? So we use a lot of volunteers for our events. Like we do a annual barn and barbecue at Lexington and we need all the helpers we can get to just get the farm ready and set up and tear down. So a lot of our events is really where we use our and need our volunteers. Um, When we have a booth at Rolex or Equine Affair or any events, the Little Brown Jug, we have had volunteers that have been with us for many years and they understand how those events run, just selling our merchandise and being able to talk about the program, not necessarily specific courses, but to be able to talk about what New Vocations does. Because we're very specialized being around racehorses, we don't really have volunteers that work to like hands-on with the horses. We find that our contract workers are better to do deal with those types of things just because of the nature of the animal that we're dealing with. So most of our volunteers that we use are for events. Oh. Yeah. That Whereas Beth, you're more day-to-day. We're definitely more day-to-day. We do involve them in our events, but the majority of our work is at the barn. Yeah. And besides funding, which is obviously the biggest focus in your business, what are some other challenges that a nonprofit faces or that you yours specifically faces? Beth, maybe you could start. I'm sure. Well, for us specifically right now, the short term has really been how do we rebuild after COVID? Um, mm-hmm. We brought back our clients very slowly and very intentionally, starting with the most independent who really maybe only needed an assist at mount and dismount. Then we brought back clients whose family members could be trained as their volunteers, at least as their leader, if not as their sidewalkers, and then slowly brought back um, more and more of our clients, all of our staff and all of our volunteers are back. Some of our riders cannot be due to age or their various conditions. The longer term issue is how to deal with the wait list. And we just last week at our board retreat said, okay, it's time to start thinking about a second location. So that will be a huge challenge, but also a huge opportunity. And we're really excited about it. So yeah, finding funders and finding volunteers, the the clients and the horses will come, but those will be our big question marks moving forward. And do you, are you going to have the second facility nearby? Will it serve the same community? We're looking at a couple of options, whether it's purchasing land that's close by, whether it's partnering with another organization that's doing similar work and would have equine capacity there. So we're, checking out a couple options. Cool. That's exciting, though, to be able to look at growth, and especially after a year like last year. Yeah, to be able to look outward and forward is just amazing. And hopefully, Delta will let us keep doing that and we'll stay out of our life. (laughs) Yeah, not be drowning in the day to day of how do we even keep this thing running? Because I know so many nonprofits couldn't do that after last year. Yeah. And Winnie, are there specific challenges for your organization? There are. So with the pandemic in 2020, we had to change a lot of things that we did and our trainers really stepped up and we weren't sure at the beginning if we would have an overflow of horses, would people be returning horses and racetracks be shutting down and we'd be getting so many horses we couldn't handle. 
And um, actually the exact opposite happened in that people were stuck at home and everybody wanted to adopt a horse. And we could not keep up with the demand. We adopted out every horse that we had, which has never, ever happened. Um, wow. To see an empty barns in Lexington and my empty barns in, Standard, in, in Sunbury, Ohio, I, I, it was crazy. Like nobody mm-hmm. expected that. However, what happened with that and which, what we're seeing now is really, uh, especially on the harness racing side, is a shortage. There is a standard bread shortage and that we've had every horse I get in, it might rehab with us or have an injury and stay with me maybe for six months, which I couldn't provide that before. Now I can. It's just not having horses. They're getting adopted still so quickly and people uh, on the racing side, they're racing them. They need the horses to race. The tracks need the horses. And the other factor that we face is the Amish use their horses for transportation, the standard breads. Nothing wrong with that at all. But because they are coming in and paying 10, 15,000, 20,000 plus for a horse that might have been donated to our program, that's really affecting the quality of horse that we're getting and the no horses. Like trainers don't have horses to send. Owners needed the money because of the pandemic. So they sold the horse versus donating the horse. So that's something that I deal with right now on a daily basis. And I'm just thrilled that we're having horses coming in and retiring. Last week, I had a horse that was purchased or claimed from a Sar- from Saratoga for 10000 and sent to new vocations. That is huge. I just, I couldn't believe that because that horse yeah. is definitely worth the $10,000 if they were to be sold. So being that um, states like Michigan and Illinois have shut down uh, racing in terms of all their tracks went away, that cut mm-hmm breeding farms so those maybe they were registering 100 to 200 foals a year that's like 500 horses that we don't have right now so in the on this in the standard run breed and with the aftercare being what it is now there's very few horses that are really going to slaughter because we can take some horses they do have to fit the model but that has changed drastically and right now there's just there's a shortage and it's, it's a struggle for me Okay. Wow. And would you say you have like a specific marketing strategy that you're using to get the word out there, to get these horses moved, to get your message across? So just in May, we did four public service announcement commercials at our farm in Lexington that are standard bread specific and thoroughbred specific. And they've been playing at tracks just the past few during the simulcast. They can play those. We also did a whole new advertising for both of the breeds and those ads have been like sent to all the tracks and they're showing up in the programs and Meadowlands Pace was the first to use our commercial, but all of the tracks that we've sent it to have been more than happy to spread that word. And we have a 30 second one and we have a 45 second one. Two are more adopter specific and the other two are donor specific. That's great. Wow. Do you use a lot of social media also for your marketing? Yes, our social media is huge in terms of getting the horses adopted. That has made it that we have more people waiting for horses than I have horses. And on the standard red side, it's made, I've got people waiting for sound horses. And because of me having to take horses that have some limitations or have some injuries, they're not quite ready to come in and out as quickly as they used to be. But we have have more more people wanting horses than horses available. And Beth, what kind of marketing strategies do you guys employ? 
Ironically, we haven't been doing that much marketing because we've had a wait list. So we didn't really want to say, hey, here's this great program. Oh, sorry, you can't come. Um, <laughs> so we're just dusting off our marketing and social media committee now in anticipation of growing when we will need to start recruiting more donors and volunteers. But we're fairly traditional where we try to be in the local horse journals and Facebook and Instagram. Those are actually great for our events and our auctions and things. And then we'll have a more round program moving forward as we actually have places to accept kids and adults. <laughs> yeah. And Beth, what advice do you have for people in the nonprofit sector in the equestrian industry? Is there any kind of key points that people need to keep in mind? You know, certainly a conversation that's been going around a lot in the last year is just taking care of yourself. We were juggling so many balls in the best of times. Last year was not the best of times. It was hard to take PTO because you weren't going anywhere. And finally, I sent a meme to my staff and it said, if I didn't create it, if Simone Biles can quit the Olympics, you can schedule some PTO. <laughs> so I <would> say, <laughs> really make a plan to take care of yourself because if you're not at your best, then no one else around you is. Right. And Winnie, is there anything that you would tell people working in the nonprofit sector? I would. Is your question more like to start a nonprofit or people working? No, yeah, just more like being in it and and what to keep top of mind knowing they're in a nonprofit business. One of the things that, that I think people need to remember is that it is a charity and the reason why you're doing what you're doing. But like Beth pointed out, like the hours are like I could work 24-7 and my trainers work that hard. Horses are in situations that they need picked up right away or on the other side is our adopters are very demanding. In terms of just sending an email, they want a response right away. If I, they don't get a response within an hour, they might blow up our social media that they're not getting a response. So that has been really huge and something I didn't think would happen. But with people at home and during the pandemic, they are expecting immediate, like they want to talk to you now when they want to talk to you about this horse, especially if we post a gray horse, everybody <laughs> wants <laughs> And they want oh, you now. the unicorn. They want mm-hmm. it. I think I've probably messaged Winnie a bunch of times over gray horses. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get any of them? <laughs> no, I haven't yet. <laughs> unicorn. No. unicorn. <laughs> she stuck with bays. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so for each of you, can you tell us and our listeners how we can help? Like what's the best way for people to help and what you need? So Beth, can you start? give a little pitch. (laughs) Sure. I will speak on behalf of every therapeutic riding program across the country. We always need volunteers. And if you have $25 to send in, we need that too. Those would be the two things that universally, I think any path center would say, yay, we need that. Okay. And Winnie, how about you guys? I would say is that people keep in mind, we're very pro racing and horse racing is not bad. There's so many wonderful people in the industry. They are professionals. They love their horses. These horses have been treated much just like royalty, just looking at what they're paying per month to have a horse in training. They're not throwaways. And I think it's just important that we stay pro racing and that aftercare is just another part of the industry. And if you can help a racehorse you want to need, please let us know or even at your racetrack, watch and and see the professionals that are there because they're professionals and they truly are horse lovers. And we're all doing this for the same thing to help the horse. Great. We have some rapid fire questions that we ask all of our guests at the end of each episode. Beth, well, I'll have, I'll have you start. 
So what is one action that women can take to make a big difference in their lives? I'm not sure if this is in their lives, but for me, each day I pick the three things that I'm getting done that day, no matter what. And I find that if I bang them out first thing in the morning, I'm less stressed for the rest of the day. So I throw that out to anyone who can make use of it. And Winnie, how about you? Mine is just gratitude. I really try to think about at least one thing or write it down that I'm grateful for each day. That's great. And Winnie, what's the best habit that keeps you motivated? It's really just the horses. I I love horses. I've grown up with them. It's all I've ever known. I'm a sixth generation harness horse person. So it's just, it's my life, whether it's my daughter's show or with the race horses or going to the races. It's truly the horse. Yeah. And Beth, what's the best habit that keeps you motivated? I'm not sure it's a habit per se, but when you hear the stories of our clients and their families and what they have to do on a day in day out basis, my life looks pretty darn easy. Right. Yeah. A little perspective helps. A lot of perspective is provided. between <laughs> steps, Yes. And the last question is what is your favorite equine movie? Uh, well, we're in horse racing sea biscuit. I always love a good underdog story. <laughs> and my favorite part is all his little companion animals that have to travel. With him. That's all. Yes. That's what we're all about at giant steps. <laughs> and Winnie, how about yours? Um, Secretariat. <laughs> Another the star. Yep. yep. Good movie. Well, we love talking to you guys about what you do and learning more about the nonprofit sector. I think our podcast is in the name, it's business to business, but nonprofit is a business itself. So I think there's a lot of people who will gain a lot from listening to you guys and hearing how you handle it and how you work through things just as any normal business does. So we really appreciate the time and coming on and talking with us. Beth, why don't you give us your info? Sure. Just www.giantstepsriding.org. And Winnie, what's yours? Ours is newvocations.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks so much. That was great. Really fun. Thank you. What I found really interesting talking to these two ladies today was how similar the nonprofit sector really is to running a real business. Yeah, I loved Winnie was talking about at the beginning how to get started and how they have a mission statement, they have a strategic plan, they're running everything just as a regular for-profit business does. And while some of the challenges are different, like with fundraising and finding volunteers, the core work of the business is the same. Yeah. When we went through it and we were talking about their funding models, well, that's different. They still made the point that you really have to, it has to be successful, right? You want to bring in more money (laughs) than what you're spending. Yeah. So I I see where the funding models might be a little bit different, but still we want to do that for our businesses. They still have marketing plans. They're still using social media. They're still have staff, they have paid staff, and it's like important, the staff that they have. Right. And there's plenty of for-profit businesses that are run by board of directors as well. And I think learning how to utilize those people to the best of your advantage, those are the nonprofits that are the most successful that have the right types of people to help the business succeed. 
I know. I actually recommended to one of my friends who they had built a new beautiful facility. And I said to her, you know, I know you guys have your instructor and your trainer and you have your person who's doing marketing and the bookkeepers and the owner of the farm. But I was like, besides all those people, like you should pick three people and put together like an advisory board for you guys. Mm -hmm. Like three people, maybe a vet, maybe um, another trainer that's like a mentor and have these people give advice to you guys. Because sometimes I think when you're looking at your business, you don't look at a big enough picture and you can have somebody else from other businesses be like, you know what, why don't you try this? This might work. Yeah. I love that idea. I think when you're in the day-to-day running of it, you get so in the weeds of the details and like Beth running a therapeutic writing program, I'm sure there are so many things to keep track of. You know, sometimes for any business leader, it's hard to slow down and take the time to look at the bigger picture and put that five-year or 10-year plan in place of where you want to be and how you're going to grow to get there. And I think that's where a board or like you said, an advisory group could really help. Oh, absolutely. I think I really do think that more barns, even small barns should think about that because it it will hold them to it, right? Hold them to Mm -hmm. making the five-year plan, making the 10-year plan. Sometimes when you have somebody that, I don't even know if it's necessarily answering to them, but like you have it in your head that you have to, to do something, then you're going to, you're going to hold yourself accountable. And it's somebody checking in with you and saying, where are you now? It's been a year. Have you done any of these steps that we discussed? I think that's a great idea for a business of any kind and any size is to have those outside advisors to keep you on track. Yeah. And also one point that I know Beth made was the paid time off. Like (laughs) those people might be the people that say to you, Hey, you need to take a break. Yeah. And remind yeah. them of that. Because if you're the business owner or the leader, you're the one who's still putting everything else into it. You're the one putting all your time into it. You're the one working at night because you don't want to stress your employees or you want to make sure your employees can have time off. But yeah, I think that's really important, especially after COVID yeah. and yeah. the year that we've had and how stressful it's been, I think, now more than ever, we need to recognize that. So that's something I'm working on for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I feel like the barn was a lot of places where people put their heads down, buried themselves into their barn because there wasn't anything else they could do. There was a period of time when other people weren't allowed at the barn. And so <laughs> I do, do think that uh, some of us overworked ourselves in the barn. Right. I see it with my parents. guys take a break. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that was a great talk. And I'm really glad we branched out a little to talk to leaders in nonprofits. And I hope that people got something out of it as well. Find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.eqbusinesswomen.com out twice a month on the 1st and 15th. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Equestrian Businesswomen and EQ Businesswomen. Find Equestrian B2B Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave a review. 
You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. Now, go find a way to help. 